Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. If we're ever going to confront someone, we must make sure that we love them. Don't you dare try to correct someone's sin in their lives if you don't care about them. Don't you try to rebuke someone if you don't love that person. It is wrong for you to try and go in and do some kind of corrective conversation or have some kind of corrective dialogue if you don't really care about that person. does it mean to speak the truth in love? Welcome to Focal Point. I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Well, today, Pastor Mike Fabares is encouraging us to live out the words of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says we must care enough about others to confront them, but to also take extra measures to couch our words in grace and compassion. Gentle confrontation isn't a natural skill for many of us, but a critical one to develop if we want to keep our relationships. Well, let's get started. thing that happens when you're out Christmas shopping, at least it happened to us this time, we uh, encountered a lot of um, friendly, uh, accommodating salespeople. You know what I mean? Kind of people that when I say, uh, is this an appropriate toy for, for a three-year-old? They, they say, oh, sure, absolutely. My wife says, does, does this sweater go, go with these pants? The sales lady says, you bet. Those, those are wonderful. When, uh, when I called ahead to the next store that we were heading to, and I, I said, I need this specific item. Do, do you have this item in stock? The guy on the other end immediately said, oh, well, absolutely, sure, we stocked that, we've got that. Of course, the problem is when I uh, search the box, I see that the uh, instructions say it's for ages uh, six and up. Uh, my wife gets the sweater out in the daylight. She sees it doesn't really match the pants. And uh, of course, when I got to that store that said they had the item I was looking for, uh, they didn't have it. Now, why is it that you think that happens? Why is it that we're told those things and in reality, they're, they're just not true? I suppose you might suggest, and I wouldn't argue with you, that there are plenty of ignorant salespeople. <laughs> I don't mean anything bad or slanderous by that. I just mean that there's a lot of people out there that really don't know what they're talking about, and they don't know that they don't know that they don't know what they're talking about. You know what I'm saying? They're just, they're just confused, and, and they don't realize it. Well, fine. That probably uh, explains a lot of it. But I think you might agree that a lot of times we're told those kinds of things because the salesperson assumes that if they tell us what we want to hear, it's going to make things better for them. That it would be good if I thought I'd found the perfect toy for my child. That they think it would be great for my wife to hear that that sweater goes well with those pants. They think I would be pleased with them in their store if they would tell me on the phone that they have what I'm looking for. I mean, it beats telling me what I don't want to hear. Or does it? If you have your Bibles, turn to Proverbs chapter 27. I want you to recognize for just a few moments that we live in a culture that sacrifices what we need to hear and what's truthful on the altar of what people want to hear all the time. Do you agree with that? We're constantly told what we are assumed to want to hear. People will tell us things because they think this will make it a more pleasant experience. And I'll say that because that'll make them happy and, and that'll be well accepted and well received. And so they, they give us all these phrases and these words and these statements that aren't necessarily true, but they, they make for a pleasant conversation. 
Proverbs chapter 27, if you note the context, and there rarely is context in the Proverbs, but in this case there is. If you look at verse 5, there's a bit of a context here in that it's referring to honesty or truthfulness and comparing someone who's openly correcting and rebuking someone to someone who's concealing their love. But what I want you to note is verse number 6 that says something very profound, that the wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Literally, the Hebrew phrase here is that the trustworthy, or that's the statement, trustworthy are the bruises of someone who loves you. Trustworthy are, are the, the hurtful things from someone that is your friend. You can count on those. You can rely on those. But you, you can't rely on just the person that doesn't care about you and, and doesn't love you because they'll tell you lots of things that aren't true and they'll even multiply kisses and, and say they're really friendly and they love you, but in reality they don't. Have you ever been bruised by something someone said? Have you been bruised by the words of a friend? I have, and it, it really hurts. They're not easy to take. It's not fun when someone you know who is a friend or an acquaintance gives you a statement that is painful and hurtful and it hurts your feelings and it hurts you. But there's one thing for sure, as the scripture suggests, that is true about those words that are hurtful from a friend. They can certainly be trusted. They're useful. They're good for me, and if I ponder them long enough and assume them and incorporate them into my life, I end up becoming a better person because of them. And I can say with the writer of the Proverbs, uh, faithful or trustworthy are those bruises. They're, they're to be counted on, and they're reliable, and they're helpful. I was talking to a guy this week who had his uh, zipper down. And there it was, gaping open. I didn't hear half of what he said because I'm, I'm thinking of w what to do here, right? He's talking, and there it is. And at that point, as I'm in this conversation with this gentleman, I have two choices. I can address the situation, you know, <laughs> zip it up, X, Y, Z, I mean, whatever you want to say, you got to say something, right? Your, your, your fly's open, you, you can do that. Or you can do what I must confess I did, and I just kind of just stare him in the eye and hope that the conversation ends soon, and then he goes away. Now, I know that's bad, but you have to empathize with me for a while that it's very hard to say, hey, you, you know, your fly's down, because that's an embarrassing thing to say. I'm sure he would be embarrassed by that. It would be uncomfortable. The conversation, though brief, would be painful, right? I mean, I don't want to get into that with this guy. But the choice that I chose was a bad one, wasn't it? Because in reality, he went off talking to countless other people <laughs> with his fly down, <laughs> And that wasn't very nice of me to, to let that go. The scripture is very clear that when we see someone in sin, when there is someone who we know that is doing something inconsistent with their walk with Christ, that we have a high calling and responsibility to get involved. We don't like to get involved. That's the dreadful conclusion of most because there's nothing more uncomfortable than confrontation, but we have a responsibility. I couldn't put it any more succinctly than Christ when he said in Luke 17, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Could it be any plainer than that? 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. It doesn't say if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. It doesn't say if your brother sins against someone you love, rebuke him. It doesn't say if someone sins and the sin impacts your life so much so that you can't ignore it, rebuke him. It says if your brother sins, rebuke him. If you're privy to information about someone that reveals a sin in their lives, you have a responsibility to do the most unpleasant thing, and that is to sit down with that person and discuss it and to say, I've come to find out that this is going on, and you may think it's none of my business, but Christ makes it my business, and we need to talk. Now, my goal in this sermon is not to make you the zipper police. You know what I'm saying? I don't want you going around thinking it is your job in everyone's life to find and scrutinize their life to the place of finding some fault and, and, and trying to correct it. I mean, this is an unpleasant task, and whenever it becomes a, a pleasant task, then you don't understand it because it is, is painful, and it's hard, and it should grieve us. But when we are privy to that information, and when we know and find out that there's something going on in the life of a brother or sister in Christ, we've got to get involved. If we don't, we fail in our responsibility. Now, of course, in our study of 2 Samuel, we've reached a place where one bold, brave, and godly man is about to step into David's life and confront him. And if you have your Bibles, you must look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 12 tells us the story of a man named Nathan who found out that David was in sin. Now, you know the story. David had just fallen into temptation in the first three verses of chapter 11. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had tried to cover it up for a number of verses by protecting his reputation, lying, lowering his standards in a variety of ways in his life. And it culminated in the murder through the hand of the Ammonites, through the direct command of King David, the murder of this lady's husband. Uriah lay dead on a battlefield, and David was responsible, and he did it all to cover up his adultery. Well, Nathan found out about it. The Bible doesn't tell us how Nathan found out about it. Perhaps it was by some divine revelation. He was a prophet, so that is a possibility, but it's more likely that Nathan found out about it the way most people find out about other people's sins because it's hard to perfectly conceal your sin. You understand that. Your sins tend to find you out, and so David, through the course of his life, probably wasn't able to perfectly conceal what he had done, and it came to the ears of Nathan. That's probably what happened. Either way, though, Nathan finds out. And when he finds out, he's prompted not only by the clear teaching of Scripture, but it says in verse number 1, he is prompted by God himself. And the text reads, verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And that must have been a painful thing. Because who really likes confrontation and wants to get involved and poke their nose in someone else's business? And yet Nathan does, because God requires him to. And when he came to David, he said, notice how he begins this discussion in verse number one. He says, there were two men, Dave, in a certain town. One was really rich and the other one was poor. The rich man, he had lots of sheep, lots of cattle. The poor guy, though, he, he didn't have anything except a little ewe lamb. And that ewe lamb was special to him. He had purchased it. He, he raised it. It grew up with his kids and it shared his food. It even drank from his cup. And if you can believe it, this little ewe lamb even slept in the arms of this poor man. It was like a child, David. It was, it was like a daughter to this guy. Now, the rich man, he had a visitor, a traveler. 
He came to the rich man's house, but the rich man, instead of taking some sheep or cattle from his flock and preparing a meal for this traveler, if you can believe it, David, he went to his neighbor, the poor man, and took his ewe lamb, the precious animal and pet of the family, and he took it out and took the knife across its throat, and he killed it and slaughtered it and served it up as a meal to his traveling friend. David, what do you think about that? What should we do? David burns with anger, it says in verse 5. He gets angry at the man and he says to Nathan, as surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Literally, the text reads, he's a son of death. He gives him a, a title and says, this is a bad man. He's not a good person. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no compassion, no pity. It was a terrible thing for him to do. Now, there's no mention here of adultery. There's no mention here of murder. There's no mention here of hypocrisy or covering up sin. Just a discussion about a poor man with a little animal that was absconded by a rich man and unjustly killed and sacrificed. My question for you is, why do you think Nathan did that? I mean, Nathan was called by God to confront David about sin. Why didn't he just come in and say, hey, Dave, I'm here because you're in sin. You're an adulterer, you're a murderer, you're, you're a hypocrite, you're, you're a liar, and uh, you got a problem. And I'm just here to confront you on that. Why is that not the way he approaches this in verse number one? Why does he start with this elaborate story, which obviously didn't, didn't happen impromptu? This was not off the cuff. This was something Nathan obviously thought through very carefully and came to him with a well-crafted story that would try to get David to view his sin. Now, why, why so much care? Why so much concern? Well, you might be tempted to think, well, it's just a good strategy. I mean, it's a good strategy and a good story kind of suck David into this and then kind of turn it on him. It's a good way to convict him of his sin. Well, that's one option, I suppose. But as I study the life of Nathan, and there's not much we can learn about him because there's not much spoken about him in the Scripture, but there's enough to glean from the Scripture that Nathan was a faithful and loyal friend to David. As a matter of fact, we find David and Nathan together in the last day of David's life. He's consulting and dealing with David's family in his room of the royal palace on his deathbed. And in 1 Kings chapter 1, we still see Nathan a part of their lives. Nathan was there, and I assume that Nathan cared. And I might suggest to you that I think the reason Nathan went to so much trouble to come up with a story to discuss with David about his own sin wasn't just because he was a strategist. It was because he loved David and he cared. And he knew there's always two ways to approach someone's problem. You can hit them over the head with a sledgehammer and say you're wrong, or you can try in some way to couch it in some loving, tactful, respectful way. And it's my suggestion that Nathan chose the latter because he loved David. He wanted to convict him of his sin, yes, but he wanted to do it with the undergirding of his personal commitment to Dave. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing for us to get this morning, that we must be, if we're ever going to confront someone we must be ready in our hearts. I put it this way. We must make sure that we love them. Don't you dare try to correct someone's sin in their lives if you don't care about them. Don't you try to rebuke someone if you don't love that person. It is wrong for you to try and go in and do some kind of corrective conversation or have some kind of corrective dialogue if you don't really care about that person. One old-time preacher I'm not sure how old this quote is, at least 100 years, I suppose, put it this way. 
He said, I'm not ready to reprove someone until I know a sense of love for the person. I can identify with a sense of hatred for their sin. I cogitated on that thought, processed that statement a few times this week, and I thought, you know, that's really what it's about. It's about an identification with the person. And I've got to get involved in their mind, in their lives, and I've got to think in their shoes for a while, and I've got to say, I care about you, and I care about the consequences of sin, and I care about the entanglement and the embroilment of sin in your life, and I care about everything that's going on, and I I can't stand the sin that's there. And, And it's not just information, it's that I really care about changing the situation. Someone once put it this way, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. I think that's really true when it comes to corrective rebuke or reproof in someone's life. You'd better undergird it with a clear understanding of your love for them. And hopefully this message will have its desired impact in your life and will make you sensitive to the fact that you have a responsibility when you learn that someone sins and you know about it. And if perhaps God has already put a name or a face in your mind and you can see that person, I hope you recognize your first point of action is to get on your knees before God and ask God to fan into a flame your love for that person, because unless you really care, your confrontation will probably be ineffective. I had a group of traveling evangelists that used to come to our university campus that I attended. We had this place out in the mall in the middle of the campus where uh, students would grab a sandwich at the student union and sit out on the grass, maybe enjoy the sun in the afternoon and eat their lunches or study between classes or read their textbooks or catch up on their last minute homework before going off to their next class. It was always crowded with students during the day. And these traveling quote-unquote evangelists would come on campus with their signs and their bullhorns and would set up shop in one corner of the mall and would begin their confrontation. And I heard the things they spewed out from their bullhorns about people's lives, and frankly, I couldn't disagree. I knew a lot of those students, and I knew their lives were embroiled in immorality and in drugs and in all kinds of sin. And what they said about them, I, I had to agree, was true. But as I looked at their approach, it was much different than Nathan's. Oh, they were confrontive, there's no question about that, but their confrontation included no love. In Ephesians chapter 4, it is critical that we understand that the Scripture always calls us to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in a certain way. You know the passage, don't you? Speak the truth in, in love. It always needs to be the undergirding of our confrontation. And if you don't love someone, then you don't confront them until you do. You must speak the truth. There's no doubt about it. And you must at times be passionate. And there's no doubt sometimes you have to be forthright. And sometimes it has to be clear. And sometimes you even need to raise your voice. I understand that. And it's all true. But it ought to come from the foundation of love in your life. If it doesn't, you're going to be counterproductive in your confrontation. You will not likely achieve the desired result of confrontation. The scripture is so practical. If you'd keep your finger in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and turn over to 1 Timothy in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, I want to show you that the Apostle Paul gave Timothy a terrific way for him in his mind to think about confrontation and how love for people ought to be so much a part of that. Look carefully at what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor, by the way, at the church of Ephesus. And if the letter to the Ephesians ever reached the church at Ephesus, and it's understood that it's probably a revolving letter, but if it got there, and we assume that it did, then we know that Timothy already knows that he's supposed to speak the truth to people in love. 
But Paul goes a step further, and in this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he gives Timothy a way to think about loving people he has to correct. Verse 1 says, do not rebuke an older man harshly. Two words I want you to circle, rebuke and harshly. Those are, in the original language, only one word. And it is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. You may say, wait a minute, the word rebuke is used a lot. It is, but this is not the word that is normally translated rebuke. This is a different word. And it's a word that's only used in this context, and it's a word that's prohibited. And it's not that we're not to correct people. It's that we're not supposed to, as this word suggests, beat people with our words. We're not supposed to browbeat people with our verbiage. We're not supposed to just go in and try and spew out truth and beat people up with the truth. That's what this word means, to rebuke harshly. And the text says, don't rebuke an older man harshly. Don't speak to him in those terms. He says, but instead, and here's the ingenious framework in which we're supposed to operate, but exhort him as if he were your father. I don't know about you, but if you come from a normal family and your relationship with your dad is normal, anywhere in the normal category, I hope you realize how different it feels going to your father to try and address some issue of correction, as it would be compared to just addressing someone in the church. I hope you see that the standard has just been raised and the bar has just been, been lifted up and we have in our lives now a standard in terms of correction to correct people as though we were speaking to our own father, particularly older men that we have to confront. And then it goes on to say, and the younger men, maybe they're not older than you, but if they're your age or younger, you ought to treat them as brothers. Now, if you have a normal family relationship and your siblings, you're not at war, but you're a normal person with brothers and sisters that you care about, you wouldn't go to your brother with some cutting, sharp words of, of rebuke. If you've got a problem, you're going to go carefully and diplomatically and respectfully. And then he goes on to say, if it's an older woman you have to correct, you ought to treat her like a mother and a younger woman like a sister with absolute purity. You see the parameters set up for us there? If you need to correct someone, you don't browbeat them with your words, drop your bomb and leave. You discuss it with them tactfully and respectfully as though you were discussing a problem with your own father or your mother or your brother or your sister. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called Caring Enough to Say What Needs to Be Said. In today's message, Pastor Mike Fabares reminded us that when we need to confront someone, we should do it with the utmost tact, love, and respect. To review the helpful study notes for today's message or to listen to the entire lesson from the beginning, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the series called Confrontation. You know, we're so grateful for all those who give so that we may never have to put Pastor Mike's teaching behind a paywall. As you've been strengthened and equipped through this program, will you partner with us to reach more people? You can join the mission right now by calling us at 888-320-5885 or by going to focalpointradio.org. And to say thanks for your support today, we'd like to send you a book that will help you understand God's grace in an even deeper way. It's a classic resource called All of Grace by the renowned British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. The free gift of grace expressed throughout Scripture gives us a warm and thankful heart for God's mercy and love. Salvation, after all, is available to all who seek it. If you want to experience God's love and grace in a new way, or if you know someone who is wrestling with doubt, then this will be a valuable resource to have nearby. 
Just call 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. By the way, if you've never let us know you're listening before, today's a great day to connect. When you do, we're going to send you a special gift. It's a booklet that helps you understand who God is. It's titled, Attributes of God. Request the booklet when you call 888-320-5885 or find it online at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Tuesday as we continue our study through 2 Samuel right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. You know, it's an honor to be with you every day, helping you explore the depths of Scripture. But I want to be clear, no amount of Bible knowledge is ever going to save you. Be sure where you stand with God. Get in touch with us. We'd love to pray with you and for you. Visit us today at focalpointradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.